0: Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. Cheers. Whitechapel, East London, home to one of England's most renowned, brutal and evasive serial killers of all time, Jack the Ripper. We explore these murders from the brutal beginnings to the mysterious end. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Dark Histories, This is actually a re-recording of the earlier episodes because my equipment's come along quite a long way and I I look back at these episodes and I used to think, you know, I I can record them at much higher quality now. So I'm going to work through. So if you're going back to these and listening chronologically through the back catalogue, you might notice like a little drop off in quality at some point. That's just because I haven't caught up because I'm just recording them as and when I can and replacing them. So, yeah. This is something I wrote quite a while back now, but I think the back catalogue deserves a you know, a better microphone, so I'm going to go back to the room. So let's get on with it. This is a story that doesn't really need an introduction. The Whitechapel Murders. In 1888, England was ruled by Queen Victoria, the British Empire was in full swing, and London was the largest capital city in the world. East London, however, did not reflect this period's supposed prosperity. It was a densely populated area, where the residents lived in poverty amongst the highest crime rates and with little future prospects. Whole families were often residing in just one room. Whitechapel, a district of East London, had the highest crime and death rates of the city. It was also home to much of the immigrant communities, leading to high racial tensions, exacerbated by high unemployment and overcrowding. There are many law-abiding and hard-working citizens, however, there are also many slums and ghettos full of drunken violence and crime. For the poorest, housing came in the form of lodgings or bunkhouses. These were large buildings where people could rent a bed for the night, or if they couldn't afford that, they could sleep standing up propped up by a rope. Many of the bunkhouses were crumbling and upkeep was often overlooked by the landlords and the roads and alleyways around the bunkhouses were often dark, winding and full of squalor. The East End could certainly be a pretty grim place, full of anxiety and fear, poverty and crime. Many women who had found themselves on hard times took to prostitution to fund their beds in the bunkhouses. These were women of an East End underclass who were poor, desperate and struggling. It was these working women that would become the focus of a murderer who arose in Whitechapel during four months in 1888, causing fear among England's populace with a brutal series of murders, Jack the Ripper. Though there are five canonical or acceptive victims of Jack the Ripper, there are theories that his murders may have escalated in brutality and that some earlier attacks may be attributed to him. These attacks have been debated for years some debunked and others still open to interpretation. Considering the violence of the time, there are many possible victims that could have been Jack's early attacks. We will focus on just two murders prior to the Canonical Five, as whether or not they were Ripper killings, the first marks a landmark in the history of the Ripper case, and the second is classed by many to be the likeliest non-canonical victim and still holds the subject of many heated debates. Emma Smith suffered a brutal attack on the night of the 3rd of April, 1888. She survived the initial attack and finally, through coercion from two women from her lodging house, made it to the London Hospital on Whitechapel Road. She spoke to the doctors there and she explained that she had been beaten and robbed by a gang of men. Emma Smith died later that morning, on the 4th of April. Her story of being attacked by a gang of men is largely accepted, therefore it's unlikely it was a ripper attack. However, her death marks a landmark in the Ripper case being that it saw the opening of the Whitechapel murders file by the police. This file would later go on to encompass the Ripper killings. Martha Tabram was a prostitute in her late 30s. During the late hours of August the 6th, she was working with her friend Marianne Connolly. They had picked up two soldiers and then split up, presumably to get to business. Her body was found in the early hours of the morning on the 7th of August by John Saunders-Reeves, who was on his way to work. She was found sprawled out on the landing of the Georgia Yard buildings, arms and hands by her sides and legs open. She had been brutally stabbed 39 times. The soldier in this story would be the natural first suspect, however, despite a lineup, neither soldier was ever identified. Two other witnesses had passed by the scene at earlier times of the night they had not seen Martha's body, though this may be attributed to the darkness of the buildings themselves being that there was no lighting. It could be argued that perhaps she was not killed by the soldier at all, but rather a different client from later in the night. Further arguments state that her body was found close to the Ripper heartland, and that her wounds were concentrated in much the same areas of the body of the later Ripper victims, though her throat was not cut. Several of the detectives and important police figures who worked on the Ripper case themselves considered Martha Tabron to be the first Ripper victim, leaving it open to many still today to be the most likely non-canon attack to have been by the Ripper himself. The brutality of the murder shocked East London, though this was just the beginning of what was to be the bloody and gruesome four months for Whitechapel. Marianne Nichols was a small woman in mid to early 40s. She had lived a colourful life, had been married for 24 years and had had five children. After many separations, she finally left her husband for good in 1881 and began living as a prostitute. She had turned to drink and was an alcoholic, moving from workhouse to workhouse throughout London. After landing a job as a maid, she stole clothing from her employers and took flight back to the workhouses that she had been so familiar with. In the early hours of August 31st, she had met her fellow prostitute Emily Holland walking through Whitechapel Street on the corner of Osborne Road, just a stone's throw away from the scene of early attack victim Emma Smith. She was apparently drunk and having some trouble supporting herself without the aid of the walls, and told Emily that she had had her dos money three times that day but she would just drunk it all away. ominously she then told Emily that she would soon be back before disappearing down Whitechapel Street and into the night at 3:45 a.m Marianne Nicholl's body was discovered by Charles Cross on Buck's Row whilst he was on his way to work. Upon seeing the body he called to his friend across the street, the two observed her and believed that she was possibly still breathing. They arranged her skirt to allow her some decency and they agreed to tell the first police officer they saw about their discovery and continued their walk to work. On Baker's Row, they met PC Jonas Misen and told the officer of their grim discovery. Meanwhile, however, PC John Neal had also discovered the body whilst walking his beat. He signalled to PC John Taine who joined him and the duo was soon joined by Meisen. P.C. Tain went to a nearby house to call on the local doctor, Reese Ralph Llewellyn, who returned to Marianne Nichols' body with P.C. Tain, but pronounced her dead at the scene, though only by minutes. Marianne Nichols' body was found in a busy industrial area of Whitechapel. On one side of the street were warehouses and factories and on the other terraced houses belonging to tradesmen. Her body lay below one of the windows of the houses, though when questioned, the residents claimed to have not heard any disturbances. She had minimal possessions, a comb, white pocket handkerchief and a piece of broken mirror. Dr Llewellyn was of no doubt that she was killed where she lay, on the street of Bucks Row, her blood running into the gutter by her side. At the inquest, her wounds were described. She had several bruises to her face and several cuts across her abdomen, along with three or four deeper cuts running downwards from her abdomen. She had also had her throat cut, causing two brutal wounds from her left ear to below her chin, which had severed all tissue down to her vertebrae. Marianne Nichols was well-known and well-liked in Whitechapel. Her friends knew her affectionately as Polly and they were moved to tears when identifying her body. Her father, ex-husband and eldest son paid for her funeral and she, was bu- and she was buried in a polished elm coffin in the City of London Cemetery. The Ripper had given London a taste of what was to come. Mary Ann Nichols was poor and she had no valuables to steal. Her killing was violent and senseless and it would not be long before he would strike again. In the days following Mary Ann Nichols' murder, the and local residents of Whitechapel had begun to panic, attributing the murder to that of a madman who had been able to vanish amongst the morning foot traffic. The fear was creeping in. Annie Chapman was 47 years old. She was petite, standing only five feet tall. She had married and had three children, though her youngest had died at the age of only 12, of meningitis. She had separated from her husband in 1885, Though reasons are uncertain, it's heavily likely that both husband and wife were deeply into drink at the time. She received an allowance from her ex husband, though after his death in 1886, she took to prostitution to make her living. She resided at Crossingham's lodging house in Spitalfields and was seemingly in something of a stable relationship with a man there named Edward Stanley, who often paid the rent for her bed. On the morning of the 8th of September, Annie Chapman was seen several times in the kitchen of her lodging house. She was drinking beer with Frederick Stevens, another lodger, around midnight. She then appeared to go to bed, however, it's likely that she had in fact left, as she was seen later returning eating a baked potato by John Evans, the night watchman. He had been sent to collect her lodging money, which she did not have. Annie went to see Donovan, the house manager, to explain that she had no money for her bed, but told him not to worry, for I'll soon be back. She asked for her bed to be kept for her. John Evans watched her leave and turned towards Spitalfields Market around 1.30am. At 5.30am, Annie was seen talking to a man at Hanbury Street by Elizabeth Long. The man had his back towards Elizabeth, who stated that she heard him ask Annie, Will you? To which Annie replied, Yes. Annie's body was found at 6am laying in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street by a resident who lived on the third floor with his family. Upon discovering the body, he alerted three men on Hanbury Street and then went to Commercial Street Police Station. Annie's attacker had used a sharp knife to cut her throat. The wound was jagged and appeared to reach right around her neck. There was blood on the ground by her head and smeared on the fence directly behind her. The murderer had then gone on to cut her abdomen clean open. Her intestines were removed and placed by her shoulder. Her uterus, upper parts of her vagina and two-thirds of her bladder had also been removed, but no trace of these parts were left at the scene. Dr George Baxter Phillips, upon describing Annie's body at the inquest later, remarked that her wounds could not have been done in such a way through surgery without taking the better part of an hour. These are the comments that would later light the fire of debate that Jack the Ripper was a skilled surgeon or butcher, or at least someone who was well trained with a knife, and possessing some anatomical knowledge. This is a debate that still rages today. Annie's possessions were a small piece of muslin, a comb and some pills. It was later discovered that she was dying either from tuberculosis or syphilis and had been suffering for some time prior to her murder. Her funeral was held in secrecy by her closest family so that only her relatives attended to avoid public attention. With Annie's death, the press had gone into overdrive reporting the murder with extreme language and gruesome imagery. They published outlandish theories and criticised the police. Panic had struck Whitechapel following the second murder. The nightmare of the Ripper had begun. As panic and fear swept through East London, a new inspector was drafted in to take care of matters on the ground, Frederick Abilene. He was well respected and one aspect of his appointment was thought to be to stabilise the public perception of the police at the time. There were many accusations, suspects and even arrests, the most famous being a man nicknamed Leather Apron. He provided an alibi for the murders and he was released by the police. Almost three weeks passed before Jack would resurface, this time giving himself a name which would become infamous the world over for over a hundred years. Elizabeth Stride was a 45-year-old Swedish woman. She had moved to London in 1866 and by 1888 she was living in the lodging houses on Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel, working as an occasional prostitute. On the night of the 30th of September, Elizabeth Stride was seen several times with men of varying descriptions. That is the testimony of Israel Schwartz that is the most intriguing. He claims to have seen Elizabeth Stride at 12.45am with a man around 30 years of age, 5 foot 5 inches tall and with fresh complexion, dark hair and a small brown moustache. He was dressed in an overcoat and an old felt black hat with a wide brim. The man had stopped to talk to Stride in the gateway of Duckfield's yard and the two began to quarrel. The man pulled her into the street and threw her onto the ground. Shorts crossed the street thinking that he was avoiding a domestic argument and not wanting to become involved. There was a second man lighting his pipe on this side of the street and the attacker called out, apparently to the second man, Lipsky. Schwartz believed he was being followed by the second man, so he ran away from the scene until the second man did not follow. At 1am, Louis Daimschutz entered Duckfield's yard on his pony and cart. His pony refused to enter the yard, and although he could not see anything as the yard was pitch black, Daimschutz thought that perhaps something was blocking the path. Using his whip, he probed the ground ahead of him and came into contact with a woman's body. Assuming that she was either drunk or asleep, he entered the working man's club at the back of the yard to get some help. Upon returning with Isaac Kozabrodsky and Morris Eagle, the three men discovered that she was dead. It was the body of Elizabeth Stride. She was lying on the ground, head against the wall of the yard with her throat cut. Upon arrival of the police and Dr Blackwell, the doctor noted that her body was still warm and he judged that by the severity of the cut to her throat, she would have bled to death in around one minute. If we gauge the timings, it's very likely that Israel Schwartz was the only man to have seen Jack the Ripper at the time of the murder. It's also very possible that Jack had been in the yard at the same time as Louis Dimeschitz when he arrived, perhaps cutting his brutal killing short of any further mutilations. The calling out of Lipsky to the second man has caused much debate as to whether or not Jack the Ripper was Jewish or perhaps worked with an accomplice in his murders. However, Inspector Abilene himself did not suspect the second man to be an accomplice at all and suggested that the murderer was not calling out to him rather than to Schwartz himself, hoping that he would flee. A year previous, a Jewish man named Lipsky had been hung for a murder of a woman and the name Lipsky had become a common insult used towards Jewish people at the time. Indeed, upon questioning, Schwartz could not be sure to whom the man was addressing. It does appear, however, that, despite these close calls, Jack was not finished for the night. Rather than fear of capture, he was, perhaps, frustrated that his work had been cut short. At almost the exact same moment that the body of Elizabeth tribe was discovered in Duckfield's yard, Catherine Eddowes was being released from Bishopsgate Police Station. She was a prostitute who had been arrested earlier that night for being drunk and disorderly, but she had sobered up enough for the on-duty police officer to release her. She left the police station with a simple farewell. Good night, old cock. Catherine Eddowes was 46 years old. She had been, if not married, in a stable relationship, and had had three children prior to her arrival in 1881 to the workhouses of Flower and Dean Street. She was not known as a prostitute and was thought to have been in a relationship with a man named John Kelly, nor was she an alcoholic, though it had been noted that she would occasionally fall to drink. Apparently, the 30th of September, 1888, was one such night. At 1.30am, P.C. Edward Watkins walked through Mitre Square on his beat and noticed nothing of any significance. Upon his return, at 1.45am, however, he saw the body of Catherine Eddowes lying on her back in a pool of blood with her clothes pulled up over her waist. Catherine Eddowes had had her throat cut, severing the arteries, which was the cause of her death. This was, however, not the full extent of her injuries. Her intestines had been removed and placed over her right shoulder. A two-foot-long piece had been detached and placed on the left-hand side of her body. Her earlobes had been cut off, her face mutilated, Her eyelids, nose and cheeks all stabbed and sliced. Her abdomen had been cut completely open and many of her organs had been stabbed or cut through, including her left kidney, which had been completely removed. All of these mutilations were done after her death. If Jack had been frustrated from being disturbed during his first murder, he certainly took it out on the poor woman here. Catherine Eddowes was buried in the City of London Cemetery on the 8th of October 1888. Following the night of these double murders, the police saw fit to release to the public a letter which they had received a few days prior on the 27th of September. The letter was headed, Dear Boss, and has become famous in history, referred to simply as the Dear Boss Letter. It read, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and they talked about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work the last one was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You'll soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle after the last job to write with but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the ladies ears off and send to police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back until I do some more work and then give it out straight. My knife is so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. With the release of the letter, Jack the Ripper became a household name, both in England and America. As the press and public grew louder, the streets of Whitechapel felt quiet, though it wouldn't last long. The press and the public now had a name for the murderer of the Whitechapel victims, Jack the Ripper. The name captured the imaginations of the locals, and several hoax letters were sent to both the press and police in the following weeks. Indeed, the authenticity of the Dear Boss letter itself is still debated today. The second most likely authentic correspondence from Jack to the police came on a postcard today named the Saucy Jackie postcard. It reads... I was not codding dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. The Saucy Jackie postcard contains references to both the removal of Catherine Edo's ears and the double murder before the details were described by the press. This led people to believe that this is a genuine correspondence. However, there are others who say that details could have been taken from the original Dear Boss letter and riffed with. On October 16th, George Lusk, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, was sent a small parcel. The Whitechapel Vigilance Committee was an organisation set up prior to the double murder by local businessmen and tradesmen. Their aim was to aid the police in their hunt for Jack by supplementing police numbers in the area and raising money for a cash reward for information leading to his capture. Inside the parcel was half of a human kidney, preserved in wine. There was also an accompanying letter, famously sent, from hell. It read, From hell, Mr. Lusk. Saw I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice, I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer, signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Upon medical examination, the kidney was found to be very close to the one removed from Catherine Eddowes, though the results were inconclusive. This parcel and letter is another of the letters which is still debated until this day, though the inclusion of the kidney sets it apart from other possible hoaxes. There were other letters, so many in fact, that the police became inundated. The month fell quiet and no more murders led people to return about their lives as usual. October passed by without incident on the streets of Whitechapel. Mary Kelly was 25 years old. She was raised in Wales by a decent family and had a good education. She was married at the age of 16, though two years later her husband was killed in an explosion. She arrived in London in 1884, aged 21. She was well liked around Whitechapel and seemed to be clear of most of the troubles of the area, though at times she could get drunk and have a temper. She rented a room in Miller's Court in the Spitalfields area and lived with an unemployed fish porter named Joseph Barnett. Due to falling on hard times financially, she had taken to prostitution to pay the rent. In October, Mary Kelly had invited a homeless prostitute to stay with them in their room and after an argument, Joseph Barnett decided that he'd had enough and moved out. At 2am on the morning of November 9th, Mary Kelly met a man named George Hutchinson on Flower and Dean Street and she asked if she could borrow some money. He declined and Mary Kelly replied, I must go and find some money. George Hutchinson saw Mary approached by a man and the pair walked off together towards Mary's room in Miller's court. The pair stopped outside her room and George heard her tell the man, Alright my dear, come along, you will be comfortable. The pair kissed and they walked into Miller's court. George Hutchinson described the man as being around 5 foot 6 inches tall, 35 or 36 years old, pale complexion, a slight moustache turned up at the corners dark hair, dark eyes and bushy eyebrows. He is, according to Hutchinson, of Jewish appearance. The man was wearing a soft felt hat pulled down over his eyes, a long dark coat trimmed with astrakhan, a white collar with a black necktie fixed with the horseshoe pin, wearing dark spats over light button over boots, a massive gold chain in his waistcoat with a large seal and red stone hanging from it. At 10.45am, Mary Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Bowyer, to Mary Kelly's room to collect overdue rent. Upon knocking and receiving no answer, he stepped around to the window, put his hand through a broken pane smashed earlier during a drunken quarrel between Mary Kelly and Joseph Barnett, and pulled aside the curtain. Inside, he saw blood on the bed, and ran back to tell McCarthy of the scene. Both men headed back to the room, and upon looking through the window himself, McCarthy confirmed that inside lay the mutilated body of Mary Kelly. McCarthy later told journalists, The sight that we saw I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a devil than that of a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God I had never expected to see such a sight as this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I may never see a sight such as this again. Mary Kelly was laying naked on her bed. Her right arm had been partially detached. All the skin from her abdomen and left leg had been removed and placed on the bedside table. All organs, along with both of her breasts, had been removed and placed around her body. Her uterus and kidneys, along with one breast, were under her head. The other breast was by her right foot. The liver was placed between her feet, The intestines were placed by the right side of her body and the spleen by the left. Her face had suffered such mutilation that she was beyond recognition, with parts of her nose, cheeks, eyebrows and ears removed. The cause of her death had been a cut through her neck that had been so deep that it went down to her vertebrae. The bones themselves were notched from the blade. Mary Kelly's body was buried in St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery, Leightonstone, on the morning of 19th November, 1888. Though there were several murders at later dates around Whitechapel, some attributed to Jack the Ripper by the press, the police never suspected another murder to be his handiwork. He had disappeared as he always had done after a murder. With one final gruesome killing, he was gone. Still today, some 129 years later, he remains the mystery he was in 1888. There have been several hundred suspects as to who might have been the Ripper over the years. Was he a medical man possessing skill with a blade and anatomical knowledge? Or perhaps a butcher or a crazed man driven insane by syphilis? Or perhaps he's just an ordinary man who had frenzied blood-fueled outbursts? The names have come and gone, adding to a long list. We'll take a look at two of the contemporary suspects highly suspected by the Whitechapel Police at the time, and two more modern suspects. Jacob Levy had lived his whole life in the Whitechapel area. He was 32 years old at the time of the Whitechapel murders in 1888, working as a butcher and lived in Middlesex Street with his wife and children. He had a history of violence and mental instability. In 1886, he was sentenced to 12 months in prison for stealing meat from another butcher, his own wife remarked about him that he feels that if he is not restrained he would do some violence to someone. He complains about hearing strange noises, cries for no reason, he feels compelled to do acts which his conscience cannot stand and has a conscious feeling of exaltation. She also mentioned that he does not sleep at nights and he wanders around aimlessly for hours. Jacob Levy was committed to the City of London Lunatic Asylum in 1890 and died due to complications from syphilis in 1891. This suggests that he had very likely had some liaisons with prostitutes during his life. Working as a butcher, Levy would have been both knowledgeable of anatomy and skilled with a knife, both things which were remarked upon during the murders. The police themselves heavily suspected a man who worked on Butcher's Row. Inspector Robert Sagar said of this man, We watched him carefully. There was no doubt that this man was insane, and after a time, his friends thought it advisable to have him removed to a private asylum. After he was removed, there was no more Ripper atrocities. One of the witnesses, a Mr. Joseph Levy, who saw Catherine Eddowes with the man on the night of her death, was later reported on as follows. Mr. Levy is absolutely obstinate and refuses to give the slightest information, leaving one to infer that he knows something but that it is afraid to be called upon in the inquest. It is possible that Joseph Levy was Jacob Levy's cousin. At the least, he was also a butcher and worked a few doors down from Jacob. Was he aware of Jacob Levy's involvement, but not willing to let on due to familial ties or close working relations? Aaron Kasminski was the man believed to be, by several high-ranking police officials at the time, One of the strongest suspects, however, many of their accounts do not tally with the man himself, nor indeed with each other. Dates, behaviours and mix-ups seem to be prevalent in all of the official accounts of him as the suspect. This has led people to question whether or not they all speak of the same man in the first place, and thus create great doubt that he is the strong suspect at all. Regardless, with all the high-ranking police naming him outright, he does require some research. Aaron was born in Russia or Poland and moved to London around 1881. He was 24 years old in 1888 and he lived in Whitechapel. By the latter period of the 1880s, he was thought to have been suffering from schizophrenia, was delusional and paranoid. He believed that he was spoken to by a higher power, refused to wash and ate food dropped as litter by others due to his paranoia of being fed he was admitted to Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum in 1891. In 1894, he was transferred to Levinstone Asylum, where he died in 1919. During his time in the asylum, he was never known as being violent. Interestingly, in 2014, Kazminsky was named by author Russell Edwards as definitively the Ripper. Edwards came to his conclusions through modern DNA evidence, which was documented in his book Naming Jack the Ripper. The book has fascinating scientific details and the DNA extraction methods are interesting, however the book's conclusions are hotly debated and largely they're unaccepted as a whole. We wait eagerly for a peer review of the latest DNA work, but until then he remains a suspect with a rather muddled backstory. Montague John Druitt was the number one suspect of Inspector Melville McNacton, a police officer from the Scotland Yard, who was involved with the Whitechapel murders file from 1889 until 1891. Drewitt was a barrister and assistant schoolmaster in Blackheath. According to the inspector's description, he was a doctor of about 41 years of age and a fairly good family who disappeared at the time of the Millers Court murder and whose body was found floating in the Thames on the 31st of December. The body was thought to have been in the water for a month or more. From private information, I have little doubt that his own family suspected this man of being the Whitechapel murderer. He was said to have been sexually insane. McNacton believed that Druitt had killed himself due to his brain giving way to insanity after the murder of Mary Kelly on November the 9th. However, there are some discrepancies with what he states about Druitt and the facts. Firstly, he was 31, not 41 years old. He was a barrister and a schoolmaster, not a doctor, and thirdly he had committed suicide by jumping into the Thames more than three weeks after the murder of Mary Kelly. In all likelihood, it was due to him losing his position in both of his jobs. Inspector Abilene himself stated about Druitt, I know all about that story, but what does it amount to? Simply this, soon after the last murder in Whitechapel, the body of a young barrister was found in the Thames but there was absolutely nothing beyond this fact that we found at the time to incriminate him. We're then left with just McNaghton's words and little solid evidence. Still, he remains high on the list of suspects today, simply due to these suspicions. Hyam Hyams was 33 years old in 1888. He lived at 29 Mitre Street, Whitechapel, with his wife and two children. In December of 1888 he was arrested by police and taken to Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary suffering from delirium tremens. He spent the next few years in and out of asylums, usually forcibly taken by the police after violent outbursts, until in 1889 he was taken to Colney Hatch Asylum after being arrested for attacking his wife with a knife. He lived out his days there until his death in 1913. During his time at Colney Hatch, he was described as being violent, threatening, noisy and destructive, once even stabbing a member of staff in the neck with a makeshift knife. Interestingly, it is the confusion and mix-ups of the high-ranking police reports concerning earlier suspect Aaron Kosminski that placed Hyam Hyams into the frame. Many of the statements made about Kosminski that missed the mark ring true for Hyams. They stated that Kozminski was committed to Colney Hatch in the spring of 1889 and he wasn't taken until 1891. Hyams, however, was admitted in April 1889. They claimed the suspect Kozminski to be violent against women, which didn't seem to be true according to records, however Hyams was. Had time taken toll and names between suspects become confused? There are many other suspects and conspiracy theories in the case of Jack the Ripper. Whether or not the real murderer will ever be found is just as much of a mystery as the man himself. There is however a strong community of amateur researchers and people who have given their whole lives researching the murders and new details are continuously coming to light. Perhaps one day the mystery will be solved for good. And that's pretty much an overview of Jack the Ripper. We're going to be back to sort of have a little chat about it after these short ads. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with daily access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show, and by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com, or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dark histories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the episode. Jack the Ripper, tough one to start with. Not sure why I picked it as the first episode, really, because it's, it's a big one. But it was the one that I, you know, I read a lot about over the years and it was one that I thought I could kick, kick off with. If you are interested in reading books on Jack the Ripper, there is so many. But, I mean, I can definitely recommend uh, anything basically written by Paul Begg. But two in particular are Jack the Ripper, The Facts and Jack the Ripper, A Complete History. Uh, they're quite in-depth books and they're quite dry but they're really thorough and J- the first one Jack the Ripper the facts is just lays out some of the murders in chronological order and it goes quite in detail about each one and it, it's, it's like an overview of the entire case basically it's it an excellent book and the second one Jack the Ripper a complete history that's really fascinating because of course, it, it takes into account the murders, but it, it speaks more about East London at the time, uh, sort of the, the social kind of history as opposed to the the murders. Uh, so they're both excellent books. As I say, they're both written by Paul Begg and B.E. Double G. Uh, and I, I think, you know, in the there's just so many Jaller books that y- you have to wade through a ton of awfulness. Before you reach something good, so I, I can definitely recommend both of those books. I think they're excellent, and Paul Beggs written quite a few books about Jack the Ripper, and I, and I would recommend them all. To be honest, um, I think he's really sort of given a lot to the Ripper community, I suppose if you want to call it that. The the Jack the Ripper murders, they're they're, they're kind of hideous and and they're they're, they're really gross and. One thing one of the saddest things I think about it is that when you when you read about it, all, all of the women were really in a bad way. A lot of people tend to if you don't know much about Jack the Ripper, but every everyone of course knows something about Jack the Ripper. It's just super famous, right? But everyone always assumes that he killed prostitutes and that all the women were prostitutes. And whilst it's true that they were prostituting themselves at the time they were killed, they often weren't sort of I don't know if you'd say a sort of career prostitutes. You know, they were women who were just in in a bad way, and it was a way for them to make some money. So they were often a lot of them, like a lot of women at the time in the East End of London, were were just sort of prostituting as a as a means to an end, uh, uh, sort of casually. So I feel like you know that that's worth pointing out because a lot of people tend to think that he just walked around killing prostitutes, and now prostitutes everywhere, but. Actually, the reality is that a lot of these women, as I say, they weren't really like career prostitutes. They were just women in really hard times. And and I think when you take that into account, obviously it brings a new dimension of kind of sadness to the whole thing. And really the only kind of plus point to the Ripper murders were that it shone a light on the east end of London and the problems it was having. And that was obviously later reformed and jack the ripper played a really big role in that reformation but it's nevertheless like a pretty tragic bunch of murders at the same time it's just lives forever because it's so fascinating the the fact that he sent those letters and that they're so dark and written in kind of fake blood and and then he sort of sent piece of a kidney through the post with the from hell letter and things like that you know it's almost like it's difficult now because we see so much other media like films and, and the From Hell graphic novel and things, but it is almost like comic books, you know, he's like a comic book bad guy and it's, it, you know, it's, it's stated, you know, like he he was uh, really took over as the kind of quintessential bad guy in, in Victor, Victorian England. Before that you had like Spring Hill Jack and stuff and, and he, like these characters kind of dominated and then Jack the Ripper came along and Boom! You know he, he just exploded. The press just loved him. I, I wouldn't say loved him, but they they probably loved the sales that he bought. But they 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 you know they really went all in on reporting it. In terms of who he was, I mean everyone's got a pet theory, right? And it's it's really difficult. One thing that I find really difficult about because for a while I got quite into Jack the Ripper and 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 sort of. the the ripper community i guess you'd call it and and say that you've got all these amateur they call themselves like ripperologists the one thing that i find difficult with it is often people are very um invested in one suspect and some people i mean you can say invested in the sense that's just who they believe but some people have actual financial investments with these you know there are a lot of authors who have written books about A suspect so they're financially invested upon them and that tends to get in the way of genuine discourse i find and i've always found that quite sad how they can't put that to one side like their own kind of feelings and biases and their own just on their own particular suspect and i don't want to bash the community or anything in any way because it's it's, it's, the community has has brought an incredible amount of uh, of, of detail to this case you know to light and and it's the community most of the time that are that writing the books so you know they've bought an awful lot but it, it's worth noting that if you do sort of go down that rabbit hole and look on websites like Casefile for example you do have to be a little bit aware that there are people there that are heavily invested in, in certain suspects and if you go against that they won't take kindly to it. It's it's yeah, it's a little bit shady. I find sometimes, especially when they're writing books, and you think, yeah, Yo, you you're invested in this. But anyway, without getting you know that that's a whole new story. That's a whole another story. Um, personally, my my kind of pet kind of suspect, I guess if you want to call it, is Joseph Levy. I've always found Joseph Levy to be deeply suspicious and I think he fits quite well but see the problem with a lot of these suspects are when you read each of their cases individually they all seem to fit quite well and I think that's one of the enduring elements of Jack the Ripper you know it's one of the things that makes it kind of go forever is that you're probably never going to know and but all of them tend to fit relatively well because it's time has gone that they that the best suspects have all been researched and developed to such a point where they all could be feasible, really. Uh, you know, when you read them, you think, yeah, this is definitely this guy. And then you read the next one and you go, oh, but this guy fits as well. It's definitely this guy. Um, so, you know, it does make it incredibly difficult. And I think at this point, the research on each suspect, like serious suspects. I'm not, not talking the conspiracy theories because they're all the nonsense, but when you get to the serious suspects, they're all just as good as one another, I feel. Um, but I, I my personal one is, is Levy, and I find that just because I, I think that the quote from the police that said that they, that they they thought Jacob Levy was sort of hiding something to protect someone, I find that quite fascinating part of it. And work has been done to find out if he was related to Joseph. And it seems that he could possibly, very possibly, have been his cousin. And if he wasn't his cousin, I think he only worked two or three doors down from him. So he definitely would have known him. And they were both part of the kind of Jewish immigrant community, which would have been very tight-knit as well. Because at the time, when you sort of read about it, they were quite heavily persecuted. So they sort of tended to band together. So then you've got this kind of element to it. And, and I feel like that that's perhaps could be quite good. You know, we'll deal with our own almost this kind of attitude of they don't want the police getting involved. We'll deal with our own. I feel like that's something that could happen. And, you know, that's why they ended up bunging him in, in the asylums and stuff. But it's, it's a fascinating case. And so that's, that's kind of my pet guy. It's my pet suspect, I guess is, is Levy. Um, I feel like he's a really good one. And, but it's funny because he's not one of the more kind of, like, Kuzminski, like Aaron Kosminsky's a kind of one of the real big ones that, that you'll find a lot of people believe it to be and stuff. But Levy's up there, definitely. He's definitely in the top sort of like 10, usually, I would have thought. And certainly quite often in the top sort of like two or three, even, you know, of most people, I would think they, they sort of, Levy gets chucked around. But he's not kind of the top suspect. But for me, I think he's just a lot of him, what he did fits, especially when his wife says that he cries a lot and goes out walking at night, and he even admitted to that. Uh, you know, he he feels that he might do some harm to some people and stuff that and went out for late night walks, couldn't sleep. It it all fits to me really well. But like I say, with a lot of the suspects, they all fit. So yeah it's a fascinating case though. I think it will be, what well, is one of those cases that will be endlessly fascinating and, and endlessly readable because the other thing is it's been researched so heavily that there is just, you know, a plethora of books and information to read about it and it's all really well documented and sourced. So, really, you know, fascinating uh, case. Anyway, I think I'm going to leave that there uh, I've you taking enough of your time. If, You'd like to find us on social media. We are pretty much everywhere at Dark Histories. Twitter at Dark Histories. Facebook at Dark Histories Podcast. Instagram, Dark underscore Histories. If you just go to darkhistories.com, you can find everything there. And that includes links to help support the show, which, you know, is always grateful and And it's through that support that I've been able to upgrade my microphone and then go back and re-record these old episodes. So you know amongst other things that they've that the patron supports really helped so if, if you can help support say jump on the website check it out check out our social media thanks very much for listening see you again soon cheers sleep tight